Welcome, 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 and Shabbat Shalom, everyone. This is a wonderful, wonderful Shabbat, a wonderful Sabbath. For those of you who might be watching the replay later, this is Saturday, February 5th, 2022. Some awesome things are happening in the world. Uh, I have been following some of the things that have been going on in the world, especially in regards to all of these different freedom events that is happening. And so I want to show you guys, first and foremost, I want to show you guys, this is stuff that's happening in the country area, in a rural area in Canada, okay? In Ontario, Canada, we have some uh, convoys that are going uh, like these, this convoy I'm going to show you here is approximately five kilometers long. Now, this is not in a big city. This is not in a big city. This is out in the country, as you will see. Check this out. Check this out. So like that went on, that went on for 10 minutes uh, long. Okay. Again, this is not from a, from a city. So we have all kinds of uh, different things going on all around the world. I know we hit, we hear what's happening in Europe and in Australia, in Canada, in the United States. I mean, this is, um, again, this is, this is like a, uh, uh, it's not part of the Ottawa protest. This is part of uh, just a group that got together in the country. And so we are seeing some, some uh, amazing things, uh, things happen today in the world. So, yeah, I want to, um, I want to also play a few videos for you guys uh, from uh, TikTok. Some of these people have questions and I want to answer some of these questions. But before we do that, let us get into some of these comments on the live chat. 1 John 2:26 says Shabbat Shalom all that you never all you that never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the spirit of God upon your souls all you that were never born again are in the hands of an angry God and that is from sinners in the hands of an angry God by Jonathan Edwards July 8th 
1741. I've heard some very amazing things um, about that particular sermon in, in that particular uh I guess you would call it revival. Uh, and so a lot of uh, God did a lot of amazing things uh, through Jonathan Edwards in that revival, causing a lot of people to uh, to repent. And they need to repent. People need to know that. Um, you know, people really, really need to, to know what it's like to be saved and what it's like not to be saved. I mean, to understand that if they're not saved, they really are sinners in the hands of an angry God. For those of you who don't know much about that uh, particular talk about history, piece of history in Christ, in uh, church history, uh, very, very interesting. I encourage you all to look into that. Okay, so um, just give me a second here and we'll pull up another comment. Um, yeah, hope you're all having an amazing, amazing Shabbat, by the way, wherever you are in the world, whether in North America or in Europe or anywhere else, like, uh, we have people from Australia showing up as well, part of regular part of the fellowship. Kalamentos says Shabbat Shalom to all with a lot of smiley faces there. Shabbat Shalom. Good to see you. Moshe, Moshe, Mosh, uh, good to see you. Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom, welcome. Kalamento says, beautiful music. Abril says, Shabbat Shalom, family. Praise Yah, we can meet over this platform with Brother Christopher and everyone else at home. Yes, awesome. Yes, praise Yah for sure. Amen. Vida says Shabbat Shalom. Vida from Holland. Hope you're having an awesome, I guess it'd be getting towards evening over there in Holland. Welcome, welcome as always. Victoria says hello. Hello, Victoria. The second first says Shabbat Shalom, everyone. It's being reported the U.S. government agreed to lift all nuclear sanctions against Iran. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things happening in the world today. There's a lot of things happening in the world today. So let's I want to I want to play a few videos of people from um from TikTok that have some questions and comments and let us let us um let's address these comments. Um Okay. For one, let's play this one. Question for Christians. Explain to me why there is a judgment day if God forgives and all our sins are wiped away. What's the point of having a judgment day if we're already forgiven? Why do I have to account for them? Okay, so yeah, I, I can understand how someone might ask that question. Why does it have to be a judgment day if God forgives all of our sins and wipes them all away? Well, the answer to that is that God is forgiving. Yes, he is a very merciful uh, God and and he does forgive, but he forgives on the condition that we repent. That's what we read all the way from Genesis to Revelation. We must repent. And if there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness. We read that all the way through the scriptures. 
And so that's what a lot of people don't understand. God just doesn't forgive just, just like without any, without any reason or without any condition being met. If that's the case, he wouldn't be a just, a just God. Remember, God is love, yes, but God is also judge. And as judge, a truly just and righteous good judge would not just forgive everybody if they're not if if they haven't repented if you have someone who's a kleptomaniac and they just break in and steal things all the time uh, that judge would be very negligent would be very very evil judge if that judge just forgave that person let them go and didn't judge them but if that person changed their life and they say, oh, I used to be a kleptomaniac. I used to steal everything all the time, but now I don't. And I'm a new person. I, you know, as 1 John 2.26 said, uh, uh, quoting Jonathan Edwards, if that person had a change of heart, born again, new creation in the Messiah, hey, you're not the same person as you used to be. You're not doing the same things that you did before. Therefore." Yes, forgiveness is is there. In Proverbs, it says very clearly, if we turn from our sins, then we'll find mercy. It doesn't say we'll find mercy just for no, just, you know, just God just pouring his mercy out on everybody equally. No, it says only if you forsake your sin, then you will find mercy. Ezekiel chapter 18, the same thing, as well as 1 Kings chapter 8, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, Ezekiel chapter 33, Isaiah chapter 1. We can go, actually, it's all the way through the Bible, all the way through the Bible. So, yes, that's why we need a judgment day. That is why we need a judgment day. So, um, let's go to our second video. Okay. Is doubt normal for a Christian? Let's dive into this question today. But that when I first gave my life to Jesus, there were times where I was like, Lord, like, are you really gonna come through? Is this really what you mean? Can I trust you? I don't think that we need to self-condemn when we have genuine questions. Because I think that doubt can really showcase, hey, I have a lack of understanding here. Proverbs, we are told not to lean on our own understanding. To okay, so yeah, she goes in talking about doubt. Is it normal to doubt all these kind of things? And so this is the thing. When faith faith is not something that is just based upon hope or wish or feeling faith is based upon evidence faith is evidence as it says in hebrews chapter 11 faith is the evidence the evidence of things not seen so you have to have evidence there in order to have faith if you don't have evidence your faith is very, very fragile. And that's why a lot of people doubt, because they have a lack of evidence. And what, what do I mean by evidence? Well, personal experience is one. Uh, when you have, when you know, when you personally know people who have been changed by the power of God, healed by the power of God, their lives have been completely 
turned around. Uh, like they're talk about new creation, born again. If you know people who are b- really born again, I mean that feeds your faith. That's evidence. So there's the personal experience, and then there's the ex- the experience of others. Um, other evidence could be researching and knowing the truth about the history of of the church for example the history of believers and knowing more about the scriptures the more you seek out the truth about the holy scriptures and the truth that's in the holy scriptures and the more you study the more you understand how it works and so the more you understand how it works the more you have faith and the more knowledge you have the more the more you have faith if you, if it's good and true and p- good not like if it's evidence evidence like for example do, do you have uh, wasn't that long ago when people didn't have much faith the christian world by and large didn't have much faith in the book of enoch for example the book of enoch was it was taught in bible schools that the book of enoch was um a forgery that was forged 2 or 300 AD okay 2 or 300 years after Jesus even you know was born um and so it was taught like this so people didn't have much faith in it but when they found the dead sea scrolls then they said oh wait a second this book book of enoch is in the dead sea scrolls which dates Four to six hundred years previous to what they what they initially believed, it dated four two to three hundred BC, and so that knowledge feeds your faith because when you have that knowledge, you say, "Oh yeah, now I see that what Jude quoted in the book of Jude is actually from the book of Enoch. It wasn't the other way around. It's not like the book of Enoch was written around Jude, but the Jude was actually." Quoting the book of Enoch, because we know the book of Enoch was existed, number one, and was in circulation and believed in the days that Jude was alive. So the more knowledge you have, the more the more that helps you uh, feed your faith. So that's the thing. You want to have more faith. You want to have stronger faith. You need to get yourself educated you need to you, you need to do some more research you need to have more experience with god and bec- and through that the those avenues of evidence will help you feed your faith let's check out another video okay Okay, this is a quick question for Christians because I don't have an answer for this one. Completely just thought of it right now and have not thought enough about it. But I think it's an interesting question. So, if we are supposed to love our enemies and Satan, the devil, is like the ultimate enemy, are we not supposed to love him? Okay, so this question is, as you would believe, it's kind of a trollish kind of question. However, there may be some people that have legitimate questions like this. How does that work? Does it, does it, is it compatible with Satan? 
The problem with this question is it's based upon the presumption that, that Jesus was talking about Satan when he wasn't. When he said, love your enemies, what he was doing was he was expounding and quoting the Torah. In specific, specifically, he was, he was quoting his, uh, Exodus chapter 23 and Leviticus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 23 instructs us to be good, to be kind to our human enemies. It says, if you're na- if, if, if one who hates you, obviously in context is talking about a human, if one who hates you uh, lost his donkey or something like that, you should return it to him. Of course, that's not talking about Satan. That's talking about a human, that's real life human experience on earth. If the one who hates you, if if, if your enemy uh, has a, a you know uh, a, a, an animal that's burdened and all this kind, of, you need to help him with it. Of course, again, that's talking about human to human. Leviticus chapter 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, that's human to human. That's not talking about Satan. You shall not bear a grudge against the children of your people. Of course, this is not talking about Satan. This is talking about people. So this particular gentleman needs to understand that when Yeshua, when Jesus said you should love your enemies, Yeshua was teaching from the Torah. The problem with this person is they don't understand the basis or the foundation of that teaching. And of course, Yeshua wasn't all that kind to the spiritual enemy, right? He, it says that he came to destroy the works of the devil. Okay, So that is something that's, that's very, very, very important to understand. Let me get to some of your, more of your comments here before we... Go on to a few more other videos. Abril says, uh, Shalom, uh, Rotterdam. Rotterdam. I visited your town once, like 20 years ago. Wow. Talking to Avida. Psalm 119 says, hey, my friends. Hey, how are you? How's it going? Uh, uh, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yes, absolutely. That's that's it right there. Absolutely. So let's check out another one of these videos. Questions? Pure Christian, use this sound. First question, were you raised in a Christian home? How long have you been a Christian? Okay, so this is something I'll, I'll have to uh, pause here. So was I raised in a Christian home? Well, uh, personally, uh, not a church-going home, let's put it that way. How long have I been a Christian? Uh, let me just see. What was the How long have you been a Christian? How long have I been a Christian? Depends on how, well, it depends on how you define Christian. As, as, as far as being born again, I would say um, 1992. It has been 30 years. How did you become a Christian? How did I become a Christian? God got a hold of me. God got a hold of me. There's nothing. It's, it, Yeshua says, "I didn't. Uh, you didn't choose me, but I chose you." And this is the reason why we should we should pray for other people, right? For those people that we 
maybe the Lord puts it on our heart to pray for certain people, people that are not saved. And so because the, really you cannot really come into the faith, come into the fold of your own accord or by your own strength. You need God to actually open the door for you. You need God to actually call you. Psalm 119 says, love one another and so fulfill the Torah. Yes, excellent. Excellent. Thank you for pointing that out. Okay. What's going on here? Have you ever doubted your faith? Uh, well, there's first of all, to answer this question, what do you mean by faith? Because I don't think that faith, I don't think it's possible to mix faith and doubt. <laughs> uh, doubted doctrine, and again, it depends on how you, you define the word faith. If the word faith is defined as your, your, your doctrine, your, um, you know, your, uh, what would you call it? Almost like a curriculum. <laughs> uh, I'm always reassessing. I think that every Christian should always reassess. Don't just believe what you're told. Think for yourself. Read the Bible for yourself. Remember, Yeshua says, you know, he rebuked people. He says like, have you not read? Do you not know? Have you not read? He, he asked people that over and over again. So, I mean, if you define the word faith as doctrine, then yeah, you should be always testing your doctrine. You shouldn't be always kind of reassessing, polishing it up, standing. It's almost like a, an artist working on a canvas. It's like you do some work and then you kind of step back, look at it. How is it? That's how Christians should be with their doctrine. They should kind of step back a little bit every once in a while and just kind of have a look, test it a little bit, test it. So in that sense, I would say yes. In the sense of real true faith, no, it's, it's it, real true faith. I don't think it's possible to, to uh, faith and doubt doesn't mix, you know, like oil and water it just doesn't mix. What convinced you that Christianity is true? Well, again, this kind of question, what is Christian? What do you mean by Christianity? Okay. Now I will, let's say, let me just start by this. If, if the definition of Christianity is someone who believes that Yeshua is the Messiah and they believe in the Holy scriptures, what convinced me that that was true? Again, the experience, uh, God called me. He made himself real to me. Um, he changed my life. I mean, it's, it's, it's something it's, you know, convinced to me is a very, very weak way to say it. It's more like, you know, you've been, you've been hit over the head. It's been painfully realistic to you. Next question. If Christianity was false, would you want to know? Again, definition. Uh, okay, Let, let's just say Christianity in this way, it means the doctrine of a church. Of course you'd want to, you know, you'd want to know what is true, what's false, for sure. It's not like you, I, I understand where this guy is coming from. It's like some people, they're so stubborn. It's like everything I believe is true and I'm not going to even consider the fact that it may not be true just because I, I believed it. And that's the way some people are. So, of course... This is the way, this is the reason why I am where I am right now, because 
it's been my goal to seek the truth out and to always reassess, to self-assess, self-reassess. If Christianity was false, what would be the biggest thing that would convince you that it is false? Again, um, definition, Christianity, meaning, let me just say this. If any doctrine of any Christian church is false, what would be the thing that would convince me of that? That it goes against the the Tanakh. It goes against, if anything goes against the previous scriptures, then it's false. And what do you think is the most misunderstood thing about Christians and Christianity? Hmm. Oh, yeah. What is the most misunderstood thing about Christians and Christianity? Oh, I mean, I can answer that like revert. I can (laughs) if you want to if you want to answer that from, uh, you know, reverse it. Like, what is it that Christians do not understand? I can answer that one very, very easily. What's the most misunderstood about Christians and Christianity. That's almost impossible to answer without defining what this guy means by quote unquote Christianity. (sighs) Yeah. I mean, if Christianity is defined as, as it should be, let's say first century 12, you know, the same doctrine and practice, uh, that the 12 disciples had. Okay. Let me, let me make it clear. If let me just, let me just define Christianity as the way it should be book of acts, doctrine and practice first century Christianity. So what's the thing that is misunderstood about that? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Where do I start? Um, well, uh, first of all, God's word is eternal. His law, his instructions are eternal. These guys they obeyed the uh, the Tanakh. They obeyed the Torah, hundred um, percent. They did everything. Christianity and Judaism in the first century were not two different religions. Christianity, as in the quote unquote and unquote the way, was it was just an, it was it was another sect of Christ, of Ju- Judaism. How do I know that? Because. They didn't go and do their own thing. They didn't go and build their own church or have their own, you know, oh, let's let's go and build a building and call it the church and we'll have pews and a steeple on it and we'll sing hymns and well every Sunday we'll we'll, we'll meet and sing a few hymns and sing a few hers and it's so cold you can skate up and down the aisles and then after the service you go and say good you know nice sermon pastor and you don't even know what he preached because you forget by the time you got to the door or you sleep through the service. That's not what they did. They didn't start their own thing. Even Yeshua did not start his own thing. When he said to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church, that that in the original Greek language meant I will edify the church that already existed. Acts chapter 7, it says the assembly, uh, it depends on what translation you read, the assembly, the church. Some translations say the church existed with Moses in the wilderness. Back in the days of Moses, the church existed. What kind of, what church was that? It was the church of Jesus. It was the church of Yeshua. I mean, he wasn't just born at, you know, around zero AD, give or take four years, whatever, however people believe. 
He wasn't born then. It says that he, he existed from before the creation of time. And he knew Moses. He knew Abraham. They knew him. So, that's the most, I think that is the most misunderstood thing about true Christianity. Is that it's all one and the same. God is one. We serve one God, one Father. We have one gospel. There's one church. There's one faith. There's one baptism. Moving on, next question. And this guy paused for a answer, I suppose. I guess uh, maybe that's uh, that's all he has for questions. Let's let's um, let me see here. Got a few more, a few more comments in the live chat, and then we'll get to another video. Mark says shalom, shalom, Mark. Welcome. Hope you're having an awesome day. Abril says, great questions you are sharing with us today, Christopher. Thank you very much, Abril. Okay, next video. Next video. So I have a question for the Christians. Since Christians believe that Jesus went on the cross willingly to atone for the sins for everyone, then why did he say this? So when he was about to on the cross, why did he say, Eli, Eli, Limas Bhaktani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Luke twenty-two forty-two, you can see he's asking to not be on the cross from the Father. Father, if you are willing, take this cup. So if anyone could answer that, that would be appreciated. So I have a question. Okay, so I appreciate this young gentleman's question. I understand what he's talking about. For those of you who are trying to understand what he means by this, um, you know, he's just saying if, you know, first of all, let's back up a step. Modern Christianity tells you that Jesus was just loves you so much. He was just over overly like he was just more than willing to go to the cross and die for you. And so this gentleman is saying, well, it doesn't it doesn't seem like he was like that because you know he's it seems like he had a hard time about it like my god my god why have you forsaken me you know uh take this cup from me i i, I don't want to do this but father i'll just do it because you want me to do it very good question uh, i would answer it by saying this the whole idea the whole the picture that is painted by modern Christianity today is not as accurate as a lot of people think it is, okay? Um, they paint Jesus to be a super, like, unrealistically spiritual or unrealistically loving kind of a person. And what I say loving in a very loose sense because a lot of people define that word in different ways. So they, they look at Jesus in an unrealistic point of view, whereas we read in the Gospels, such as um, the Gospel of Luke, how he quoted in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we read in the Gospels how he was a lot more, again, practical, a lot more down to earth, a lot more, you would say, human in the sense that he was, you know, he did get angry. 
and he did clear the temple. You know, he did get angry with people. He did, <laughs> you know, he, he had his emotional, you know, experiences and times. And in the same way, he did feel great sorrow, as it says, before his crucifixion. And it doesn't seem like he was very, very uh, keen on it in praying with, you know, sweating great drops of blood, as it says, and begging God, begging the Father to, to uh, let him be delivered from this 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 experience this uh, this evil i guess you would say uh in the sense of i don't want to go to the cross i don't want to have to be crucified so the question that this particular gentleman asked was created by an unrealistic sense of the superhuman the superhuman you know as I'm trying to explain, uh, Lord help me to, to explain this. Um, his question is based upon an unrealistic picture that the church paints today of Yeshua. The unrealistic picture is that Yeshua is so, so, so much super spiritual. It's, it's like he's not that human. He's not that human. So, that's that would be my my answer to that question that again that question is based upon an error an error that he never did that he was just super willing to be crucified he was super willing all the time you know there was never a moment when he didn't want to be and that's an error Next video. Uh, let me see here. Now, this is not so much a question, but I want to. I want to just. I, I want to pull this up, and play it, and let's talk about this, and then we'll get into. If you have any more questions or comments, feel free to drop it in the live chat. If you have any prayer requests. Feel free, feel free to drop it in the live chat, and then we will get into something very, very interesting. Actually, we're going to pick up from where we left off last night, talking about the exodus out of Egypt and picking up with the Song of Moses, and we're going to read it from the Legends of the Jews, a very interesting a set of books that was compiled by a gentleman about a hundred years ago, and so we're going to read that. But before that, let's let's um, let's listen to this video. Assalamualaikum. I get this question so many times in a day. It's pretty overwhelming that um, so many people keep asking me. But um, the reason why I have tattoos on my body, and I have two two more small ones other than this one. Thank God I never got like big ones, but um, <clears throat> this is what happens when a little kid grows up with no guidance, with not, when, when a little girl grows up with bad examples, with bad role models, this is what happens. So let me be your example to not do things like this because this is not cool. I don't even know what these things mean. I got this stuff thinking it was cute 
and it's not. It's not cute. This is what happens when a little girl grows up with 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 bad examples as as you know people that raise you. So let me be your example, and please never do this, and never want to do this. It's not. Yeah. So. Um, I thought that we, we should, we should just kind of touch on this today. And this is a thing, um, a lot of Christians today. Now, God bless this young lady for being honest and being humble enough to say, I shouldn't have done this. Take, use me as an example. Uh, don't do it. As you know, I respect that in the sense that there are a lot of people today in her position, not being so much a Muslim, but Christians especially, uh, that they would just make excuses for it. They would say, oh, yeah, but the Bible says it, but, oh, but it doesn't really mean that. You know, and they point out in this in the scriptures where it says, you know, you should not put tattoos upon your body, you know, and, and they say, well, in, in, in the surrounding verses and the surrounding context, it's talking about markings for the dead and all that. Well, it's talking about markings for the dead, not, be, not just tattoos. And that's not true at all. That is just not true. It says very clearly not to have a tattoo, not to be tattooed. And so I've seen so many pastors in the past few years, and you know, and those of you who are old enough to realize it wasn't that long ago that tattoos were not very favorable. They weren't really in style, right? Uh, it hasn't been in just in the past couple of decades, I would say, where tattoos kind of become more of a fad, more of a thing, you know? And so pastors that get tattoos are more, they, they take, they get more influence from the world than they do from the word and that's the that's that's just a fact it says that if you're born again if you really are filled with the spirit of god your physical body is the temple of god now, if God even implies, even hints at the fact that he doesn't want tattoos on his temple, then why would, why would honest, God-fearing Christians do it? Now, if you've already had a tattoo in the past and you're born again, that's a different situation. That's a different story, okay? I'm not talking about that. And that's, you know, that's some... Deal with that from a different, you know, a different angle. I'm talking about those who are, at least they claim to be Christians. They claim to have been born again. They claim to be following God. They claim to be on fire for God. They claim to be, you know, into the word and all that kind of thing. And yet they still get all these tattoos. It's against the Torah. Can you imagine in the days of Moses? Or even in the days of Solomon, the temple. Can you imagine if you just go in to the temple and take a, a can of spray paint and start start spray painting things like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Can you imagine what kind of wrath that, that would incur? Can you imagine how upset God would be about that? 
You, but you could say, but, but I, but I wrote the word of God. I, I, put, I put the scriptures on it. But that's not the point. The point is, God said not to do it. He didn't say it's okay if you write my word on it. It's like going up to someone's car. Let's say they got they have an expensive, you know, Porsche or Lamborghini. And it's just pure, it's just white or silvery color. And you take black spray paint and you and you and you write out, you're awesome. I'm sure the owner would be very, very angry. But you can say, oh, but 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 I said you're awesome. You shouldn't be angry. I, I'm I'm praising you. You know what I'm getting at. People who are born again, especially pastors, should know way better than this. People who are born again and they get tattoos on. And it doesn't matter if it's scripture verses or whatever. Scripture references and all these kind of things or crosses or even a picture of their, their view of the image of Jesus. doesn't matter. God said, don't do it. Don't do it. God said, write his word on the doorposts of your, ho- of your house, okay? He didn't say, write it on yourself. <laughs> he didn't say, write it up. He didn't say, get a tattoo of it. So those of you who, let's say you have, you've had tattoos uh, from the past, you know, God forgives. Yes, he can forgive. Absolutely. You know, and I think he would be more than willing to forgive if, if you repent. And repenting means not I'm, not, I'm not talking about just feeling sorry. I'm talking about saying, God, I'm not, I'm not, gonna, I'm just not going to do it again. I changed my mind. You know, that's repentance. I'm not going to do it again. Yes, God would easily, could easily forgive. Now, I would suggest, now I'm, take it for what it, for what it is. Okay, I don't know all of the processes and all of the procedures and exactly what it's what it entails to have a tattoo removed. I know we spoke to Brother Paul Neeson there a few weeks ago, and he explained that he did, and he said it wasn't very it wasn't a very pleasant experience, but he did anyway. Um, and in that case, I would I would just suggest you talk to a doctor or talk to a specialist, um, an expert in that field and, and, and talk to them about the options of getting it removed. I think that would be a really good sign of, of repentance. However, um, yeah, maybe there's cases that it's not good to get it removed for one reason or another. Uh, again, I believe that God would, would be um, understanding of that. So that's one thing. And before I get, before I get too far here. I want to talk about one more thing before I get into the the song of Moses according to the legends of the Jews. And that is the use of marijuana in in the in a believer's life. And this is a this is a hot topic today. Where some people who claim to be Christians, claim to be believers, they would tell they say they believe it's okay to smoke marijuana to get high they think it's okay 
It's against the word of God. It's against the instructions of God. It's against the Torah. It's against everything about what God wants. God calls that pharmakia. And that's a Greek word in the New Testament that's translated sorcery a lot of times in the New Testament. Strictly forbidden. But it's also in the Torah as well. Okay? And so we got that element. And if that should be enough to say, okay, God forbids this. I don't want to do it anymore. I mean, if you have the fear, if you got an ounce of, an, an iota of the fear of God in you, you should say, okay, I don't want to do it anymore if God forbids it. doesn't matter how I like, if I like it or not. And that brings me to uh, point number two. God, God's word, God's instructions, God's ways are not about pampering you and making you feel good. That's not what it's all about. The word of God is not about making you feel good. It's not, it's not like Joel Osteen feel good gospel, okay? God will bless you and you always go around with always having a smile on your face, always laughing at everything. And God will bless you with, you know, a seven car garage and, 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 and you know, five different sports cars and an RV and everything. That's not what God is about. God is not all about a feel good kind of thing. He is not into fancying your sensual nature. And that's what drugs do. That's what recreational drugs do. It entices you because it makes you feel so good. It makes you feel so high. God's not about that. God is the opposite to that. Because you see, drugs leave you empty in more ways than one. Okay, you're empty emotionally. Once you come down from that high, you're empty emotionally, you're empty spiritually, and your pocketbook is empty. And your health has deteriorated for the most part. Certainly not God's will. God does not want you to do anything that would compromise your health or to spend your money in a foolish way, spending great amount of money on something that just makes you feel good and leaves you empty afterwards. God's not about that. So another thing is this, number three, is that God strictly forbids idolatry. And many people idolize these kind of recreational drugs. That's just a fact. They do anything for it. That's why there are so many crimes committed because they need money or whatever for their drugs. Because that particular idol in their life is driving them to commit horrible crimes. They'll do anything for it to get high again. And that is not good either. There's nothing good about it at all. 
Now, if you're feeling down and you, I know some people would say, well, what about medical marijuana? Well, of course, smoking it is no, is not healthy. It's no good. All right. Perhaps there is, and I'd say it's very, very, very rare, but perhaps there is a medical legitimate reason to, 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 to use it in a medical for medical reasons, not for recreational use, not to get high, but for medical reasons, not to get high. Perhaps that, you know, in that situation, then it would be acceptable. And some people then they take it a step further. They say, well, you know, um, I'm going through a lot of things. I need to get high right now. I need to, I need to get high just to, just to, just to carry me over emotionally, just to carry me over, you know, so that I, you know, to help me to handle the stress in life. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. And again, that is not good. You are at that point in time, that's idolatry. You are relying on recreational drugs to get you through instead of God himself, instead of prayer, instead of prayer. Because where does it stop? You say, well, you know, you can say any drug, even the hard, heavy drugs that are super dangerous to take because it's so potent. They will say the same thing. Well, I need it because I'm going through some stuff or whatever. No, it's just an excuse. You pour out your soul to God. You come to God in prayer. You spend some time with God. You humble yourself before God and He will lift you up. He will lift you up. And I tell you, when He lifts you up, you'll be higher than you've ever been. You'll be higher than you've ever been. And then you'll look back and you'll say, oh yeah, I see how empty and wicked these other recreational drugs were. Very empty. A counterfeit. Counterfeit to the real deal, to the real ecstasy, to the real glory that you can experience with the Lord. And that's a fact. That's the truth. See, so we have here in the comments before we get on to reading our uh, Song of Moses. Yeah, Abril says, uh, I live surrounded by idolaters and witch, witchcraft followers, but yes, there are a lot of regular Christians too in my home, in my town, uh, but Torah keepers, not so much. They live far away. Yeah, it's a good thing to be surrounded by good people as much as it possibly can, but, uh, you know, sometimes it's not possible and, you know, praise God, praise God that we can do something like this, right? We can have some fellowship, even though it's not in person per se, we have some fellowship um, through the internet. All right. So again, as I read this, um, feel free to drop some questions or comments or prayer requests in the live chat, and I will get to them intermittently. In the meantime, let us, let's read a little bit about the song at the sea 
i.e. the Song of Moses, from the, uh, from the Legends of the Jews. Uh, Mark here says, what are, what are your thoughts on the Scriptures Bible? Um, I'm not familiar with that. I, I, I believe that would be a, 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 the name of the interpretation or the, in, the version of that Bible, uh, the Scriptures Bible. I'm not really familiar with that, so I'm sorry I cannot comment on that, Mark. Sorry about that. Song of the Sea. Mightiest faith for the Spirit of God came upon the Israelites as a reward for their trust in God and in his servant Moses. Let me just stop here for a second. The Spirit of God came upon the Israelites as a reward for their trust in God. So you don't need anything. When you have the Spirit of God upon you, that's the greatest reward. That's the greatest reward. But you have to put your trust in God to get it. And in his servant Moses, and it was in this exaltation that they sang to the Lord a song that moved him to grant forgiveness for all their sins. This song was the second of the nine songs that in the course of history, the history of Israel, excuse me, that in the course of history of Israel sang to their God. They assembled to sing the first in Egypt on the night when they were freed from captivity. Their second was the song of triumph by the Red Sea. Their third, when the, when the wells sprang up in the wilderness, Moses sang the fourth before his death. The fifth was Joshua's song after his victory over the five Amorite kings. Deborah and Barak sang the sixth when they conquered Sisera. The seventh was David's psalm of thanksgiving to God for his deliverance out of the hand of all his enemies. The eighth was Solomon's song at the dedication of the temple. The ninth, Jehoshaphat sang as trusting in God. He went to battle against the Moabites and Ammonites. The tenth and last song, however, will be that grand and mighty song when Israel will raise their voice in triumph in the future, at their future deliverance, for that will be the final release of Israel for all time. Okay. When Israel prepared to sound their praises to God for delivering them from destruction in the Red Sea, God to show his recognition of Israel's fulfillment of the token of the Abrahamic covenant, bade the angels who came to intone their song. Wait. Quote, let my children sing first, he said. This incident with the angels is like the story of the king who, upon returning from a victorious campaign, was told that his son and his servant were waiting with wreaths in their hands and were asking who should first crown him. The king said, Oh, you fools, to question if my servant should walk before my son. No, let my son come first. This was the second time the angels were obliged to retire before Israel. When Israel stood before or stood by the Red Sea, 
before them the rolling waters, and behind them the hosts of Egypt. Then too the angels appeared to sing their daily song of praise to the Lord. But God called them, Forbear, my children are in distress, and you would sing? Very, very interesting. Uh, okay, let me see what we got here for comments. Okay, the second verse talking about the scriptures Bible. The second verse says uh, to Mark, he has a copy. Um, but have found errors and missing verses. Missing verses, yep. I know several different Bibles like that. The worst one, um, I mean, it's got its pros and cons, but the one that I've seen to be the most manipulated Although I have one myself, I have a copy of, of it myself, but the one that I found that to be the most manipulated of all, this is not the scriptures Bible, but the, the Sefer Bible actually, uh, very manipulated. Uh, although there are some good things about it. There are some good things about the uh, Sefer Bible, uh, but there are some things you need to realize if you ever, if you ever read that, if anybody has a copy, um, it does have some very questionable things in there that the translator or the publisher does not care to expound upon why he did, why they do what they did. Okay, so let's um, let's continue our reading here. But even after the men had completed their song, it was not yet given to the angels to raise their voices. For after the men followed the women of Israel, and only then came the turn of the angels, then they began to murmur and said, is it not enough that the men have preceded us? Shall the women come, uh, come before us also? But God replied, as surely as you live, so it is. At first, Israel requested their leader Moses to begin the song. But he declined, saying, no, you, sh you shall begin it, for it is a greater mark of honor to be praised by the multitude than by a single one. At once the people sang, We will glorify the Eternal, for He has shown us signs and tokens. When the Egyptians passed the decree against us and said, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, our mothers went into the field, and you did bid a sleep to fall upon them, and they bore us without any pain. And the, and the angels descended from heaven, washed and anointed us, and robed, robed us in many, in many colored silken garments, and placed in our hands two lumps, one of butter and one of honey. Just a second. When our mothers awoke and saw us washed, anointed, and clothed in silk, 
Then they praised, then they praised you and said, Praise be God who has turned his grace and has and his ever his lasting love from the seed of our father Abraham. And now behold, they are in your hand. Do with them as you will. And they departed. When the Egyptians saw us, they approached, they approached to kill us, but you in your great mercy did bid the earth swallow us and set us in another place where, where we have uh, where we were not seen by the Egyptians. And lo, in this way did you save us from their hand. When we grew up, we wandered in troops to Egypt, where each re- recognized his parents and his family. All this has have you done for us, therefore will we sing of you. Thereupon Moses said, You have given thanks to the Holy One, blessed be he, and not I will praise his name, for to me also he has shown signs and tokens. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he is become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an inhabitation. In other words, a place to live. My father is God, and I will exalt him. The song by the Red Sea was as much as the song of Moses as of all Israel. For the great leader counted not, counted as not less than all the other Israelites together, and besides, he had composed a large portion of the song. In virtue of the Spirit of God that possessed them while they sang, Moses and the people mutually supplemented each other, so that as soon as Moses spoke half the verse, the people repeated it and linked the second complementary part to it. So Moses began with the half verse, quote, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, unquote. Whereupon the people answered, the horse and his rider has he thrown into the sea, unquote. And in this this wise developed the whole song. Now, this is something we don't we don't read of um, in the book of uh, Exodus. Uh, we don't read about how it seems like there was like a responsive reading here. Okay, continuing, but not alone. The adults took part in this song. Even the sucklings dropped their mother's breast to join in singing. Yes, even the embryos in the womb joined in the, in joined the melody, and the angels' voices swelled the song. So God distinguished Israel during the passage through the Red Sea, and even the children beheld His glory. Yes, even the woman. The woman slave saw more of the presence of God by the Red Sea than the prophet Ezekiel was was ever permitted to behold. They closed the song with the words, quote, Let us set the crown of glory upon the head of our deliverer, who suffers all things to perish, but does not but does not himself decay, who changes all things, but is himself unchanged. 
His is the diadem of sovereignty, for he is the king of kings in this world, and his is the sovereignty of the world to come. It is his and will be his in all eternity. Thereupon Moses spake to Israel, quote, You have seen all the signs and uh, all miracles and works of glory that the Holy One, blessed be he, has wrought before you. But even more will he do for you in the world to come. For not like unto this world is the world of the hereafter. For in this world, war and suffering, evil inclination, Satan, and the angel of death hold sway. But in the future world, there would there will be neither suffering nor enmity, neither Satan nor the angel of death, neither groans nor oppression nor evil inclination. As Moses and the race that wandered from, from Egypt with him sang a song to the Lord by the Red Sea, so shall they sing again in the world to come. In the world to come, all generations will pass before the Lord and, and will ask him who should first intone the song of praise, whereupon he will reply, quote, In the past, it was the generation of Moses that offered up to me a song of praise. Let them do it now once more as, the, as Moses conducted the song by the Red Sea. So shall he do in the world of, of the hereafter. In other respects, too, it shall be in the world to come as it was in the time of the song by the Red Sea. For when Israel intoned the song of praise, God put on a festive robe on which he embroidered all the promises for a happy future to Israel. Among them were written, quote, Then shall my light break forth as the morning, unquote. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord has done great things for them, unquote. And as many similar, similar promises. But when Israel sinned, God rent the festive robe, and he will not restore it or put it on until the coming of the future world. After the men had completed the song, the women under the guidance of Miriam sang the same song to the accompaniment of of music and dancing. The Israelites had had perfect faith that God would perform for them miracles and deeds of glory. Hence, they had provided themselves with timbrels, that's tambourines, and with flutes, that they might have them at hand to, glor to glorify the, antici the anticipated miracles. Then Miriam said, Then Miriam said to the women, Let us sing unto the Lord, for strength and sublimity are his. He lords it over the, world, the lordly, and he, he resents presumption. Well, there's a lot of presumption in the church today, isn't there? He hurled Pharaoh's horses and chariots into the sea and drowned them because the wicked Pharaoh in his presumption pursued God's people Israel. Okay, guys, we have a little bit more music here for us, a little bit more relaxing music for us here. So just for the next few minutes, enjoy.
Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you very much. Very good, very good. We have a uh, comment here from Vita, John 17, 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Very, very good. Um, the Black uh, MM says is saying amen, worshiping amen, Ray the sun god. Uh, can someone answer this question? Uh, no, it's not. Saying amen is, is not. Um, yeah, just because something, I, I'm, I'm not sure what the arguments are, but I mean, amen is actually right from, directly from the scriptures. It's, it's actually a transliteration of the original um, amen. Some people say amen. Same thing, um, you know, in the Hebrew, it's not, um, you know, there's no, vo no vowel marks. So there's different ways of saying it. It means the same thing. Yeah, a lot of talk about the difference between amen and amen. Yeah, I, I mean, th these kind of things, um, again, you know, looking at it from uh, the original language here. Let's just check it out. Just give me a second here. So looking it up here in like the original the original Hebrew uh, is is this here. Uh, you got your Aleph. Uh, mem and noon, okay, and the vowel marks were put in there by the Maser the, the Maserites. So, uh, the you know there is no vowels here basically, uh, and so the way it was originally pronounced, it could have been a number of different ways. Okay, so I mean it, it doesn't um, just because you say I don't think that anybody with any any degree of of certainty can say it was pronounced amen or amen or amun. I mean, there's different ways of saying it, all meaning the same thing. Uh, just because you say a word a certain way doesn't mean that it, it's the meaning of the word that counts. That's what it, that's what really what counts. I mean, you um, there are different ways of saying different words, and that's that's really 
there's a lot of people out there and you got to be very, very careful. You got a lot of people out there about, you know, it's not, it's not Yahweh, it's Yahuwah, which I do believe it's probably Yahuwah. Um, but either way, you know, just because you say it a different way, doesn't mean it's a different God. Just because you say a word a different way, doesn't mean it's a different word. Um, a lot of people out there that are really, really, uh, They look at things like, for example, I remember um, years ago, I had a website that uh, that I had up and uh, I don't have it up anymore, but it had a um, it had just a general pattern in the background. I, I just use a general a general pattern, a very, very simple pattern. And uh, you get these people that come around and they say, oh, look, at there's I see something in that pattern. I see something in that pattern. Well, the person who said that is like, well, I see an upside down cross in that pattern. That means he's a Satan worshiper. It's like, can you get past the surface and get to actually what the substance is? You know, and to me, it's like, I'm the one that put it up there. I'm the one that made, I'm the one that designed the website. And I'm like, where, where you see this? What do you see? Um, you know, I should I should show you guys what the kind of the kind of thing that the kind of thing that was that uh, I'll show you guys the way my website was was uh, designed. Okay, it was like this. It had a um, a heading up here, and then down the side here had the navigational bar, and up here. You know, just had like a regular like little logo or something like that. Okay. So, but this person thought that in here, there was an upside down cross in here. How this person saw that, I don't know. But it's like, like, can you not think a little bit deeper than that? Can you not actually look at what I'm saying, what I'm, what I'm talking about, what I'm, you know, what's the actual content? of the, of the website for and like and another thing too. I'm like, well, just because it's an upside down cross doesn't mean it's evil either. Peter, one of the greatest apostles that ever lived, the Lord's one of the closest disciples of the Lord, the one to whom the Lord said, I will build my church upon you. Peter was crucified. He died on an upside down cross by choice. It was his choice to be. It was his choice to be. So, you know, and then you got people that, you know, they, they put these, you know, these different pastors, especially televangelists or anybody who's, uh, who's, uh, you know, got a, um, anybody who's well known, they, they have pictures of, look at this person is making a, you know, a, a satanic sign with his hands, with his fingers. Um, I suppose if you scour through millions of frames of video you can you can probably find symbols and things in hand gestures that you can probably extract from millions of different frames of animated uh video that uh that appear like a person is 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 showing or flashing a 666 or some stupid thing like that but to know the person personally you know that they're not 
you know, and that's the same thing when it comes to different pronunciations. Like people say, well, it's yeah, it's Yahusha or it's Yahawasha or it's Yashu or it's, you know, Yeshu and not Yashu. It's that, you know, Yashu is a different person than Yeshu and Yashua is different than Yeshua. You know, it's just the same kind of thing. It's like Amen versus Amen or Amen. Um, again, nobody knows. There's no way of telling exactly what vowel was put in there because the Masoretes have been wrong on many different things. And to, and to say that uh, it's amen opposed to amen, you're going by what the Masoretes said. And they've been wrong. They've been wrong. The, the bottom line is this. If you say it a little bit different, if you use a little bit different of an accent or a little bit different of a vowel, it doesn't make a difference. You mean the same thing. You're saying the same thing in just a different way. And it's the same. You're just pronouncing Aleph, Mem, Nun a different way. And that's really what it's all about. As the second verse says, very, very, uh, this is really, he like he knows what's in our hearts. It's just like how people would say, and that's true, the second verse. It's like this. People would say, um, what Jesus said, if you speak to the mountain, it will move. It takes a lot more than words, okay? It takes a lot more than words to move a mountain. I speak, I've been, I've, I've spent a lot of time in word of faith and faith kind of circles and fellowships. And I know I actually, back in the mid nineties, I grew up in that kind of thing of, of uh, you know, uh, faith. Word of faith kind of stuff, faith movement and all this kind of stuff. And if you speak to the mountain, you know, whatever you ask for in prayer, you shall receive it if you pray in my name. Well, and it's the same kind of thing. It's like in the name of Jesus, just because you say in the name of Jesus doesn't mean it's in the name of Jesus. I mean, you can pray again, like, oh, uh, Father, give me, you know, um, a 50, 50 room mansion tomorrow in Jesus name. And then you say, well, it has to come because Jesus said, if you pray in my, in my name, you will, you will have it. But it takes a whole lot more. It's not about what you verbalize. It's about the spirit behind it. It's about whether or not God is really behind it. And that's the same, that's the same thing when it comes to any kind of words that, are, that people speak. Okay? Whether you say Yeshua or Yeshu, or Yahusha, or Yahawasha, it's all the same. It's just different ways of saying the same name for the same person. Whether you say Amen, or Aman, or Amen, or Amen, it's the same thing, okay? Um, It's almost like this. It's almost like this. Well, I saw people coming out of that church with black books in their hands. They're satanic. Because Satan worshipers carry black books. No. You <laughs> just because you have a black book doesn't mean it's a it's a satanic Bible. Okay? Just because you have a black book, it could be a holy Bible. And that's the way it is when it comes to di- pronouncing different words different ways. Just because it's pronounced on the surface, it looks just because perhaps 
some of these people who worshipped Ray, the sun god, use the word amen. Where did they get that from? Probably got it from the Bible. Probably got it from Moses. Does that mean they're worshiping the God of the Bible? No. If you say amen, does it mean you're worshiping the uh, Ray God because they said amen? No, of course not. It has nothing to do with that. Other than the fact they use it. What if, I mean, you can take it further. You can say, well, the, there are people who worship the Ray God and they used, they used, they were, they were, um, they used a certain language. They used Greek. Does that mean the whole New Testament is worshiping the, uh, the, uh, the, the Ray, the God of the Son, because it's in Greek? No. We got to look a lot deeper than just words, just the way it's pronounced. You got to look a lot deeper than that. Got to look a lot deeper than that. What's the intent of the heart? What's the motivation behind it? What's the spirit behind it? That's what counts. That's really what counts. And I know there's a lot of people out there. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. Some of the stuff that you see, you see on, on the internet and some of the stuff you would see when you search for these kind of things, yeah, it's, it's really ridiculous. But you got to learn. This is why I always say you have to learn. It's very, very important. You want to know the truth? You have to learn how to think critically. What evidence stands? What evidence does not stand very well? That's what counts. That's what counts. Talk about Satan worshipers. Satan worshipers say you got to respect one another. Does that mean that if a Christian says that, that you got to respect one another, they're a Satan worshiper? No. We got to look much deeper than that. I mean, that's even more than just one word. That's a whole sentence. There's, there are actually things, there are a lot of things that Satan worshiper, that the church of Satan teaches that's, that's in line with Christianity. I'm not saying everything. Of course, not everything. There's a lot of things that are not. Okay, don't get me wrong. But you, you, you can take one word out of it. Oh, you know, uh, the church of Satan uses, uses the term God. Does that mean that every person that uses the word God worship is, worships Satan? No, of course not. Of course not. And so again, we got to look at it from, we got to really use some good thinking. We got to really learn how not to be paranoid, not to be paranoid. I know there are a lot of people that suffer from paranoia and schizophrenia out there and delusional. There's a lot of delusional people out there. Don't be deceived by these people. Just because you think, oh, look, there's a picture of Pastor so-and-so. He's making a, a 666 symbol with his hand. When really, the, the truth of the matter is, Pastor so-and-so is a very, very great person. He would never think about doing something. He would never do that kind of thing. He really worships God in spirit and truth. But he just happened to be, out of all of the millions of frames of a video, he happened to somehow form his hand in that everybody does even children in the womb might make that symbol doesn't mean that they are you know so yeah we got to be very careful with looking for these kind of things got to be very very careful it's not it's not of the spirit of god it's not of the spirit of god you got to look for the substance of a matter the substance of a matter not just symbols not just words but the substance of a matter
what are the what is the substance of that matter that's where it's all that's what it all comes down to okay so um let's continue with reading from the legends of the jews and uh we'll continue with that The awful desert, just as Israel had displayed sullenness and lack of faith upon approaching the sea, so did they upon leaving it. Hardly had had they seen that the Egyptians met death in the waters of the sea when they spoke to Moses and said, God had led us from Egypt only to grant us five tokens, to give us the wealth of Egypt, to let us walk in the clouds of glory to cleave the sea for us, to take vengeance on the Egyptians, and to let us sing uh, sing him a song of praise. Now that all this has taken place, let us return to Egypt. Moses answered, The Eternal said, The Egyptians whom you have seen today, yes, shall see them again no more forever. But the people were not yet content and said, Now the Egyptians are all dead, and therefore we can return to Egypt. Then Moses said, You must now redeem your pledge, for God said, When you have brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. Still the people remained headstrong, and without giving heed to Moses, they set out on a on the road to Egypt under the guidance of an idol that they that they had brought with them out of Egypt and had even retained during their passage through the sea. Only through sheer force was Moses able to restrain them from their sinful transgression. This was the second of the ten temptations with which Israel was tempted God during their wanderings through the desert. There was one other difficulty with the people that Moses had had to overcome. The sea cast up many jewels, pearls, and other treasures that had belonged to the Egyptians. Drowned, Drowned in its waves, and Israel found it hard to tear themselves away from the spot that brought them such riches. Moses, however, said, Do you really believe that the sea will continue to yield you pearls and jewels? From the sea, they passed to the desert shore, a horrible and dreadful wilderness full of snakes, lizards, and scorpions extending over hundreds of miles. So deadly is the nature of the snakes that dwell in the desert that if one of them merely glides over the shadow of a flying bird, the bird falls into pieces. It was in this desert that the following happened to King Shapur. A cohort that he sent through this desert was was swallowed by a snake. And the same fate overtook a second and a third cohort. Upon the advice of his sages, 
He then filled the hides of animals with hot coals wrapped in straw and had had these cast before the snake until it expired. It was it was then a proof of Israel's great faith in in their God that they obeyed Moses and without murmur or delay followed him into this frightful wilderness. Therefore did God reward them for their trust in him. For not only were they not harmed by the snakes and scorpions during their many years stay in the desert, but they were even relieved of the fear of the reptiles. For as soon as the snakes saw the Israelites, they meekly lay down upon the sand. For three days they marched through the desert, uncomplaining. But when their supply of water gave out, the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? While crossing the Red Sea, they they had provided themselves with water, for miraculously the sea flowed sweet for them. And now, when the supply was becoming exhausted, they began to give expression to their dissatisfaction. On this occasion, they again betrayed their faint-heartedness. For instead of seeking advice from from their leader Moses, they began to murmur against him and against God even though at, at present they had not yet suffered from lack of water. So poorly did they stand to test the test to which God has put them. For in fact, the very ground upon which they trod had running water beneath it. But they were not aware of this, and uh, God had desired to see how they would act under these conditions. The people were all the more exasperated because of their joy when they sighted the springs and hastened to draw from from the uh, from them. I guess we call it turned to the keenest disappointment when they tasted the water and found it bitter. These deluded hopes cast them down spiritually as well as physically and grieved them, not so much for their own sakes as for those of their young children, to whose pleas for water they could not listen without tears. Some of the thoughtless and fickle of faith among them uttered the accusation that even the former kindness had been granted them so much as as a benefit, but rather with a view to the present and much greater privation. These said that death by the hand of the enemy is to be thrice preferred to perishing by thirst. For by the wise man, speedy and painless departure from life is in no way to be distinguished from immortality. The only real death, however, is slow and painful dying, for the, for the dread lies not in being dead, but in dying. While they indulged in these lamentations, Moses prayed to God to forgive the faint, the faint of heart, their unseemly words, their unseemly words, and furthermore to supply the general want. Mindful of the desires of the people, Moses did not pray long, but uttered his request in a few words, and quickly as he had prayed. Was his, was his prayer answered. This is how you know that you're really close to God. You pray and your prayer is answered 
quickly. By the way, let me say this. I'll never forget this. When it comes to prayers answered quickly, I'll never forget this. One of the one of the churches I used to go to, the pastor said this, and this is a charismatic church, a very, very, actually a very famous charismatic church. And one of the things the pastor said was actually really, really good. And he said, you know, a lot of you, you are really like, you really want to hear the voice of God. You really want to hear the spirit of God. You really want to, you really want to, um, to hear God speak to you. You're seeking, how do you hear God? You want to hear the voice of God more. He said, let me give you a, a surefire way to know, a surefire way to hear God. He said, come before God humbly in prayer and ask God to show you your sins. Ask God to show you your sins and God will quickly show you. You see, the, the prayers that God answers quickly should tell us something. It should tell us that these are the prayers that God really respects. That's why he answers them quickly. These are the things that God really considers to be very important. That's why he answers them quickly. Other prayers he doesn't answer quickly, if at all. Because to God, either they're, it, first of all, it's either the one who's praying, who's that's the problem. Maybe it's just not in, in the wrong time. Uh, maybe the person who is actually praying to God has sin in their heart, in their life. They are harboring sin. And therefore, a, according to the book of Psalms, if you, if you regard iniquity in your heart, God will not hear you. But at other times, it could be because, because it's not important to God. God didn't answer it because it's just something that you shouldn't be actually praying for. But one of the most important prayers you could ever pray is, God, show me my sins. Show me where I need to repent. Show me where I need to turn away from sin. And if you're, if you're honest, he'll be quick to answer those prayers. God bade him take a piece of, of a laurel tree, write upon it the great and glorious name of God, and throw it into the water, whereupon the water would become drinkable and sweet. Now, again, here is the picture of, of Moses taking the tree and throwing it into the water, according to the book of Exodus. Um, how, however, uh, you know, we don't have these details here where it says that Moses, Moses actually wrote the name of God on that. Another thing is, too, that everybody should be aware of is, typically speaking, uh, a lot of Christians believe that that tree, or in this case, the laurel tree, um, represented the cross. Okay, and the, and the water represents the people. We know that in the book of Revelation where it says the water uh represents people it's it's a symbol of uh of many people the waters and therefore the cross uh the power of the cross would make the bitter people sweet heal the people basically moving on in uh, the legends of the jews by the way for those of you who are wondering we are reading from volume three 
chapter one, about, well, more than halfway through. The ways of the Holy One, blessed be he, differ from the ways of man. Man turns bitter to sweet by the agency of some sweet stuff, but God transformed the bitter water through the bitter laurel tree. Again, I can't help but think that, you know, I can't, I can't get it out of my mind that this represents the cross because, you know, again, I've, I heard this in the, Christ, the Christian world and a lot of Christians believe this. When Israel beheld this miracle, they asked forgiveness of their heavenly father. Hmm, very interesting, people. Very interesting. Again, you don't see this hardly at all in Jewish literature, but keep in mind what we're reading here is Jewish literature. And the Jewish literature, this is not Messianic. This is not Christian, by the way. And they call God their heavenly father. Not something you read very much of in Jewish literature, for sure. So they asked forgiveness of their heavenly father and said, O Lord of the world, we sinned against you when we murmured about the water. Not through this miracle alone, however, has Mara become a significant spot for Israel, but especially because there, there God gave to Israel important precepts like the Sabbath rest, marriage, and civil laws, and said to the people, If you will observe these statutes, you will receive many more, the Ten Commandments, the Halakot, and the Hagaot. Okay? Uh, these are Jewish, different, different um, categories of Jewish law. Uh, the Torah, however, will bring you happiness in life. See, a lot of Christians, they, let me just, again, interject here. A lot of Christians, they confuse Halakot with the Torah. And say, oh, we don't go by the Torah because we don't go by the Jewish laws. Well, the Torah is not the Jewish laws. The Halakot are. The Halakot, that's the Jewish law. The Torah is the law of God. Moving on here. If you will diligently endeavor to walk through life uprightly so that you will be virtuous in your dealing with men, I will value it as if you had fulfilled all commandments. Powerful, isn't it? Again, it says here, if you will diligently endeavor to walk through life uprightly so that you will be virtuous in dealing with men, I will value it as if you have fulfilled all commandments. This is very, very reminiscent of Ezekiel chapter 18, where Ezekiel chapter 18 says, if you turn from your sin and you obey the commandments, then God will look at you as if you have never ever transgress his commandments. As if you've always walked in perfection all of your life. And all you have to do is repent, according to Ezekiel chapter 18. He says, I will value it as if you had fulfilled all the commandments and put upon you none of those diseases that I brought Egypt. If, however... You will not be mindful of my laws, but will be visited by, and will be divisit. excuse me, <laughs> let me start that again. If, however, you will not be mindful of my laws, I think about the pretty much the entirety of the church there, and will be visited by diseases, then I will be, 
I will be you a, a, your physician and make you and make you well for as for as soon as you will observe the laws shall the diseases vanish wow that's awesome right there for as soon as you will observe the laws shall the diseases vanish let's stop here for a second i have seen a very famous quote unquote healing evangelist time and time again literally get on his knees before tens of thousands of people in his meetings and and ask that God heals everyone that God heals all his understanding was that in the days of Jesus when Jesus walked this earth it says that he healed all that came to him and his understanding was Jesus is, is with us, you know, by faith. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Jesus still heals, which is true. Uh, and so he asked that all would be healed. <coughs> Excuse me. And I've seen this particular healing evangelist do this over and over and over again in his meetings. And... Um, You know, of course, it didn't happen. Again, what was the, what's the problem? Did he, I mean, he prayed in the name of Jesus. Jesus said it would happen if you pray in the name of Jesus, right? But what's the problem? I mean, Jesus healed all back in, back in, in, the, in the days of the, the first century. Why not now? The problem is the, the context. The context. When Jesus healed all, it wasn't really all because a lot of people could not stand Jesus' teachings. Jesus was very harsh in, in his teachings. You know, at one point in time, he, you know, 5,000 people fo followed him. You know, and that's when he fed the 5,000, right? He fed the 5,000. I, I, I don't know if you heard that. I hit the guitar. Like, he fed the 5,000, right? So... We know that at one point in time, 5,000 people followed him. So far out, it's like they, were, they, they, weren't, they weren't near any, they weren't around home. They didn't have any uh, place to go and didn't have nowhere to eat. And that's why he fed the 5,000, because he had compassion on them. And then he preached hard and heavy, right? And then, you know, it went from 5,000 down to, well, there was like the 70, 72. Remember at one point in time, Jesus had like 70, 72 followers. That's when he, he sent them out two by two. And he still preached very strong and hard. And you remember when everybody left and it was only 12 left, only 12 didn't leave Jesus. And they said, and Jesus turned to them and he's like, are you going to leave too? You know, I like that because it's like Jesus didn't follow out. The people who turned away from him, the people who left him, he didn't go, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, did I offend you? Oh, please come back. Please come back. I didn't mean to offend you. I didn't mean to be so hard on you guys. No, he didn't do that at all. After thousands of people left him, and he was only left with the 12, he just turns to the 12. He's like, well, are you guys going to go too or what? Are you guys going too or are you going to stay? And that's when, you know, they said, well, no, there's nowhere else we, where else can we find the word of life? 
that's what they said to him. So in the context of when Jesus healed all, remember, normally he preached first and then he healed. He preached first, then he healed. Now, for those of you who are, maybe you're, you are asking God for a miracle. You're asking God for a healing. Maybe it's a physical, maybe it's a healing, you know, maybe it's another different kind of miracle. This could be very meaningful to you. Because Yeshua preached first, and then the miracles happened. Why is that? It was, consider the context. I mean, think with me just for a moment, guys. This is very important. Think with me just for a moment. It was open air preaching. I mean, Jesus didn't have a captive audience. He didn't lock them all into a room, okay? It was open air. It was like street preaching. And you know what it's like with street preachers. It's hard to, it's hard to captivate, it's hard to get people's attention, let alone keep their attention enough before they walk away. So when Yeshua was preaching, the people who gathered around, it wasn't everybody. It was those, it was only those people who were humble enough, humble enough, I emphasize, and strong enough spiritually to take his harsh and hard teachings. Everybody else, they just walked away. They didn't have to listen to him at all. They didn't have to even look at him. They'll walk on by. It was open air preaching. So the so after he preached, the audience that he had there, the quote unquote all, those people were the ones who were humble enough to hear and to withstand these hard and harsh words that Jesus had to speak. They're the ones who were left. They're the ones that were all healed. Not the, it's not like Jesus just, you know, just blank, threw a blanket over an, an entire city and said, you're all healed. No. Only the ones who cared enough to come out, to listen to him, and could stand it. Because a lot of this stuff is hard to understand, hard, not only hard to understand, but hard to withstand. Some of the blessed are the, are the uh, are you who mourn. Can you imagine street preachers today preaching that kind of stuff? What kind of audience are they going to get? Blessed are you who do not. Woe to you who laugh. Woe to you who feast, basically. Blessed are you who are persecuted. Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Be perfect as the Father is perfect. Take up your instrument of execution, cross, and follow me. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. If you sin, you're a slave to sin. I mean, lots of stuff he preached that was that wasn't very it wasn't like a bed of roses to the world. It was hard. You had to be humble. 
you had to be humble enough to say, hey, um, wow, I need to humble myself. I need to, I need to get right with God. I need to do, you know, I need to be serious here. And it doesn't matter how much this hurts me. I want the truth. That's basically the kind of crowd that was left. That is the kind of crowd who had their quote unquote diseases vanish. Okay. So the reason why I, I, I fully believe the reason why this particular healing evangelist that I'm referring to did not see his prayers come to fruition is because he did not preach that hard message of repentance and sinlessness and Torah prior to his praying for the sick. And he didn't do it in an open air setting either. He, he basically, he had a captive audience because everybody was in a big auditorium. I mean, not, I mean, people can walk out. Yeah, they can, but it's not as easy as if you're walking by on the street or something like that, like it was in the days of Jesus. So those who humbled themselves, who obeyed utterly are the ones who were healed. Just like how it says here, for as soon as you will observe the laws, shall the diseases vanish. Moving on with the legends of the Jews, the cause for the want of water at Mara had been that for three days the people had neglected the study of the Torah. And it was for this reason that the prophets and elders of Israel instituted the custom of reading from the Torah on Saturday, Monday, and Thursday at the public service, so that three days might not might never again pass without reading from the Torah. Very interesting. From Mara, they moved on to Elim. From a distance, palm trees made the place look inviting enough. But even but when the people came close, they were again disappointed. There were not more than three score and ten palm trees. That would be um, seventy. Three score being sixty and ten seventy. And there were and there were of stunted growth owing to a lack of water. For in spite of the presence of 12 wells of water, the soil was so barren and sandy that the wells were not sufficient to water it. Here again, the marvelous intercession of God in favor of the fate of Israel is shown. For the scant supply of water at Elim which had hardly sufficed for 70 palm trees, satisfied 60 myriads of the wandering people that stayed there for several days. The men of understanding could, could at this place see a clear allusion to the fortune of the people. For there are 12 tribes of the people, each of which, if it proved if it prove God-fearing, will be a, wa a well of water, inasmuch as its piety will constantly and continually bring forth beautiful deeds, the leaders of the people. However, 
the leaders of the people, excuse me, however, are 70, and they recall the noble palm tree. For in outward appearance as well as in fruits, it is the most beautiful of trees, whose seat of life does not lie buried deep in the, in the roots, as with other plants, but soars high, set like the heart in the midst of its branches, by which it is surrounded as a queen under the protection of her bodyguard. The soul of him who has tasted piety possesses a similar spirit. It has learned to look up and ascend, and itself ever busy with spiritual things, and the investigation of divine beauty disdains earthly things and considers them only a childish childish play, whereas that aspiration alone seems serious. It was at Elim where at the creation of the world, God had made the 12 wells of water and the 70 palm trees to correspond to the 12 tribes and the 70 elders of Israel that Israel first took up the study of the law. For there they studied the laws given them at Mara. Very interesting. Okay, let me see here. On... Vida says, if you pray and it is also God's will for your life, you will get it immediately. Yes. Amen. That is, that's very, very good. I mean, let's think about that from a little bit more. Like, who in the Bible, what pious man in the Bible, like from Adam all the way to, you know, the last, or all the way to the book of Revelation, what pious man in the Bible ever prayed and God did not answer? Immediately. Right? You know, they would get an answer quickly. Now, again, if you're not pious or if you're not, um, if you're not worthy, if you, if you got sin in your life, you got sin in your heart, as it says in Psalms, then yeah, maybe God won't hear you. There's a perhaps, you know, God might hear you even then, but I would say don't expect God to hear you. Don't expect God to pay attention to you, according to the scriptures. Uh, but yeah, you, you read about people like Samuel. I mean, every time he prayed, God was right there. Boom. You, re, you read about it there in Isaiah chapter 58, right? It's like when you call, God will say, here am I, right here. I'm here. I will come, I will come to you speedily. Trust me delivery on Twitch says I'm listening and multitasking. Awesome. 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 Don't mind me. Thank you for your comments and uh, good to know you're there. Welcome as always. All right, so 
Let's, um, Jerome says, Shalom. Shalom, Jerome. Good to see you. Welcome. Okay, so we're going to read about the heavenly food. Heavenly food. The manna, we know that according to the book of the Gospel of John, you know, Yeshua said, I am the manna. I am the bread of life. Let's read from this. Uh, this is, again, from the Legends of the Jews, Volume 3, Chapter 1, about two-thirds of the way through. The bread which Israel had taken along out of Egypt sufficed for 31 days. And when they had consumed it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against their leader, Moses. It was not only immediate want that oppressed them, but despair of a food supply for the future. For when they saw the vast, extensive, utterly barren wilderness before them, their courage gave way, and they said, We migrated, expecting freedom, and now we are not even free from the cares of, of substances. Subsistence. Subsistence. We are not, as a leader promised, excuse me, as out leader promised. Maybe our leader, is, it means there's a lot of different typos here. Excuse me. I apologize for those of you. I know that some of you may be listening audio only. <laughs> some different typos here and some old words here that's kind of a little bit not I'm not so familiar with. So please excuse me on that. We are not, as our leader promised, the happiest, but in truth, the most unfortunate of men. After our leader's words had keyed us to the highest pitch of expectation and had filled our ears with vain hopes. He tortures us with famine and does not provide even the necessary food. When the name of a few of a new settlement, he has deceived this great, uh, great, great multitude. After he had succeeded in leading us from a well-known and uh, to an uninhabited land, he now plans to send us to the underworld, the last road of life. Would to God we had died in the hand of the Lord, or by the hand of the Lord, during the three days of darkness in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full. In their exasperation, they spoke untruths. For in reality, they had suffered from want of food in Egypt, too, as Egyptians had not given them enough to eat. Well, you see, this is what happens, right? You start saying a lot of, sometimes you don't have enough food. Sometimes you don't, hey, guys, I mean, you know, it's very important. It's something very, very important. Get some good nutrition. It's good for your, if for no other reason, for your brains, if not for your body, for your brains. I know a guy. I know a guy. He, I don't know why he did this. Of course, it was it was a very foolish thing for him to do. But um, I used to work with this guy, and um, he, and he started instead of bringing lunch to work, instead of bringing food and, and actually eating, he brought 
just water, like sugar water, basically what it, what it was. He had lots of energy. And he was saying, oh, this is just sugar water. And I'm like, okay, you know, I was just young at the time. I was just young at the time. Um, but um, it wasn't long after that. Um, he literally lost his mind. He literally lost his mind. Um, I mean, he did some really, really, really crazy things and he ended up in jail. Very important to get your get nutrition for your mind. Your mind needs some good nutrition. Moving on here, in spite of the railings against him, Moses was not so much indignant about their words as about the fickleness of the people. After those many quite extraordinary experiences, they had no right to expect merely the, the natural and, and the probable, but should cheerfully have, entrust, have trusted him. For truly, in the sight of all, they had been shown the most tangible proofs of his reliability. When, on the other hand, Moses considered their distress, he forgave them, for he told himself that a multitude is by nature fickle and allows itself to be easily influenced by impressions of the moment, which cast the past into oblivion and engender dis despair of, of the future. God also forgave the unworthy conduct of, of Israel, and instead of being angry with them because they murmured against him, when it should have been their duty to pray to him, he was ready to grant them aid, saying to Moses, they act according to their lights, and I will act according to mine. Not later than tomorrow morning, manna will descend from heaven. As a reward for Abraham's readiness in answer to the summons to sacrifice Isaac when, when he said, Here am I, God promised manna to the descendants of Abraham with the same words, Here I am. In the same way, during their wanderings through the wilderness, God repaid the descendants of Abraham for what their ancestor had done by the angels who visited him. Let me just stop here for a second. I, I do have to say this. You know, I know a lot of you know this, but here's the thing. A lot of the powerful people in the world, and I know you guys know this, but just think about it. I'm not sure if you think about it in this way or not, but a lot of the powerful people in the world um, some politicians, some judges, some lawyers, some owners of big companies like, you know, we got like people like, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to mention the people, but in the big, big and super power, like some of the richest companies in the world today, um, they're Jewish. Uh, and a lot of them, a lot of them are not they're not walking according to the Holy Scriptures. Let, let me put it that way, right? They're not, you wouldn't, you, you, I can't say they're the most holiest people in the world, 
However, they are some of the most blessed people in the world. And I believe it's because even though in spite of the fact that they're not walking with the Lord as they should, they are blessed because of the prayer of Abraham. Because of God's blessing upon Abraham that overflows to his descendants. They are a very blessed people, a very blessed people. And the prayers of their um, ancestors, by the way, as well. Not just Abraham, but other other ancestors, I'm sure, have prayed great blessings upon some of these people. So, uh, just give me a second here. Okay. So God repaid the descendants of Abraham for what their ancestor had done by the angels who visited him. He himself had fetched bread for them. And likewise, God himself caused bread to rain from heaven. Again, we see this over and over again, don't we? We see it so much in the legends of the Jews, how God repays people for what they do. If you do good to others, he will repay you good. If you do evil to others, he will repay you not so good. It reminds me of uh, Matthew chapter 25, where Yeshua spoke really clearly in the parable of the sheep and the goats. You will get you will be saved or not saved based upon, he didn't say whether whether or not you were, you actually, based upon the fact that you said the sinner's prayer or not, based upon anything, based upon what you did or didn't do. Based upon what you did or did not do. You treated God's people good according to the parable of the sheep and the goats. You win. You don't you lose. And that's just the way it is. It's not the doctrine of faith alone. I'm telling you that much. It's certainly not the doctrine of faith alone, according to Jesus himself. So again, God repaid the descendants of Abraham for what their ancestor had done by the angels who visited him. He himself had fetched bread for them. And likewise, God himself caused bread to reign from heaven. He himself ran before them on their way. And likewise, God moved before Israel. He had water fetched for them. And likewise, God, through Moses, caused water to flow from the rock. He bade them seek shade under the tree. And likewise, God had a cloud spread over Israel. Then God spoke to Moses, quote, I will immediately reveal myself without Jacob. I will rain bread from my treasure in heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day. There were good reasons for not exceeding a day's ration in the daily downpour of manna. First, that they might be spared the need of carrying it on their their wanderings. Secondly, that they might daily receive it hot. And lastly, that they might day by day depend upon God's aid and in this way exercise themselves in faith. Wow, isn't that good? We don't read that very much, do we? We don't read too much of that in the 
the common scriptures or the common Bible. So again, there's different reasons why God, let me just say this again, because it's so good. There, there were there were good reasons for not exceeding a day's ration in the daily, daily downpour of manna. In other words, like why didn't God just give him like, you know, like like Joseph's uh, storehouse with, you know, enough food to last for seven years all at once, right? Why, why, why did he have to do it day by day? First, that they might be spared the need of carrying it on their wanderings. Second, that they might uh, daily receive it hot, hmm, hot bread. Fresh out of the oven, fresh out of the heavenly oven. And lastly, that they might day by day depend upon God's aid and in this way exercise themselves in faith. Very, very important, people. While the people were still abed, God fulfilled their desire and rained down manna for them. For this food had been created on the second day of creation and ground by the angels, and it later descended for the wanderers in the wilderness. The mills are stationed in the third heaven where manna is constantly being ground for future use of the pious. For in the future world, manna will will be set before them. That sounds good. Maybe you and I will have some manna someday, right? Sitting across that heavenly banquet table we can have some manna we can talk about some of the things that we we can spend some more fellowship in heaven how does that sound manna deserves its name again manna means uh, what is it but according to here it says manna deserves its name bread of angels not only because it is prepared by them but because those who partake of it become equal to the angels in strength and furthermore, like them, have no need of easing themselves as manna is entirely dissolved in the body. Not until they sinned did they have, have to ease themselves like ordinary mortals. Hmm, that's, a, that's interesting. But can you imagine being equal to the angels in strength? This. Uh, what comes to mind is in Revelation, it says that one angel, one, one angel bound up Satan. One angel did that. That's all it took is just one angel to, to, to defeat the devil in that sense, to overpower him and bind him. That's all it took. It's one. Manna also showed its heavenly origin in, in the miraculous flavor it possessed. There was no need of cooking or baking it, nor did it require any other preparation. And still, it contained the flavor of every conceivable dish. You know, I, I, let me just stop here for a second. Um, I, I did hear uh, a rabbi speak about this many, many times. Uh, again, this is, um, you know, of a Jewish tradition passed down from generation to generation. And apparently this is what the Jews say is true. That it, it, Let me just back up a step. Can you imagine getting fed manna every day? Like you think, oh, you'd get sick of it, right? Get sick of it. But according to legend, according to traditional beliefs, 
mana had was like a, a universal taste. Um, it it, um, it if you wanted it to taste like a like a hamburger, it would taste like a hamburger. If you wanted it to taste like a steak, it would taste like a steak. You know, if you wanted it to taste like a, a mango, it would taste like a mango. Um, but let's read on here and see what this says. Uh, this is the first time I'm actually reading this this particular portion too. So let me just see. Uh, yeah, so there was no need of cooking or baking it, nor did it require any other preparation. And it still contained the flavor of every conceivable dish. One had to only desire a certain dish, and no sooner than he uh, had he thought of it, than manna had the flavor of that of that dish desire. That's exactly what I was just saying there. The same food had a different taste to everyone who partook of it, according to his age. To the little children, it tasted like milk; to the strong youths, like bread; to the old men, like honey. To the sick, like barley steeped in oil and honey. As miraculous as the taste of manna was in the desert, uh, excuse me. As miraculous as the taste of manna was, it it descended from heaven. First came a north wind to sweep the floor of the desert, then a rain to wash it quite clean, then dew descended upon it which was congealed into a solid stump substance by the wind, that it might serve as a table for the heaven-descending gold, but that no insects or vermin might settle on the manna. The frozen dew formed not only a tablecloth, but also a cover for the manna, so that it lay enclosed there as, as in a casket, protecting from protected from soiling or pollution above and below. The gathering of manna. The gathering of manna. With an easy mind, every individual might perform his morning prayer in his house and recite the Shema, then, then betake himself to the entrance of his tent and gather manna for himself and all his family. The gathering of manna caused little trouble, and those among the people who were too lazy to perform even the slickest work went out a while, went out while man, manna fell, so that it fell straight into their hands. The manna lasted until the fourth hour of the day when it melted. But even the melted manna was not wasted for out of it formed the rivers from which the pious will drink in the hereafter. The heathen even then attempted to drink out of the streams, out of these streams, but manna that tasted so deliciously to the Jews had a quite bitter taste in the mouth of the heathen. Only indirectly could they partake of the enjoyment of the manna. They used they used to ca catch the animals that drank the melted manna, and even even it in uh, even it this form it was so. I guess it should say even in this form it was so delicious that the heathen cried, "Happy is the people that is in such a case." 
For the descent of manna was not a secret to the heathen, as it settled at such enormous heights that the kings of the east and the west could see how Israel received its miraculous food. The mass of the manna was in proportion to its height, for as much descended day by day as might have satisfied the wants of 60 myriads of people through 2,000 years. Such profusion of manna fell over the body of Joshua alone as might have sufficed for the maintenance of the whole congregation. Manna, indeed, had the peculiarity of falling to, falling to every individual in the same measure, and when, after gathering, they measured it, they found that there was an omer for every man. Many lawsuits were amicably decided through the fall of manna. If a married couple came before Moses, each accusing the other of inconstancy, Moses would say to them, tomorrow morning judgment will be given. If then manna descended for the wife before the house of her husband, it was known that he was in the right. But if her share descended before the house of her own parents, she was in the right. The only days on which manna did not descend were the Sabbaths and the holy days, but then a double portion fell on the preceding day. These days had a further distinction that while they lasted, the color of the manna sparkled more than usual, and it tasted better than usual. The people, however, were faint-hearted, and on the, first, on the very first Sabbath, they wanted to go out as usual to gather manna in the morning although announcement had been made that God would send them no food on that day. Moses, however, restrained them. They attempted to do it again toward evening, and again Moses restrained them with the words, quote, Today you shall not find it in the field. Unquote. At these words they were greatly alarmed, for they feared that they might not receive it any more at all. But their leader quieted with them, the uh, excuse me, quieted them with the words, Today you shall not find any of it, but assuredly tomorrow in this world you shall not receive manna on the Sabbath, but assuredly in the future world. The unbelieving among them did not hearken to the words of God and went out on the Sabbath to find manna. Hereupon God said to Moses, Announce these words to, to Israel. I have led you out of Egypt. I uh, have cleft the sea for you, have sent manna, have caused the well of water to spring up for you, have sent the quails to come up, uh, come up to you, have battled for you against Amalek and wrought other miracles for you, and still you do not obey my statutes and commandments. Reminds me of Christians today how God did so much for pe for Christians. You know, they, God did work miracles for many Christians. Save them. Give, you know, the born-again experience. Save them from sin. All kinds of things that God did. Give them wonderful, wonderful things. And yet they don't obey God's commandments. You have not even the excuse that I imposed full many commandments upon you. For all that I bade you do at Mar Mara, was to, was to observe the Sabbath, but you have violated it. 
if, continues Moses, you will observe the Sabbath, God will give you three festivals in the month of Nisan, Siwan and Tishri. And as a reward for the observance of the Sabbath, you will receive six gifts from God, the land of Israel, the future world, the new world, the sovereignty of the dynasty of David, the institution of the priests and the, and the Levites, and furthermore, as a reward for the observance of the Sabbath, you shall be free from the three great afflictions, from the afflictions of the times of Gog and Magog, from the travails of the Messianic time, and from the day of the great judgment. When Israel heard these exhortations and promises, they determined to observe the Sabbath and did so. They did not know, to be sure, what they had lost through their violation of the first Sabbath. Had Israel then observed the Sabbath, no nation would ever have been able to exercise any authority over them. Wow. This, moreover, was not, only, was not the only sin that Israel committed during this time, for some among them also broke the other commandment in regard to the manna, that, is, that it, not to store it away from day to day. These sinners were none other than the infamous pair, Dathan and Abiram, who did not hearken to the word of God, but saved the manna for the following day. But if they fancied they could conceal their sinful deed, they were mistaken. For great swarms of, of worms bred from the manna, and these moved in a long train from their tents to the other tents, so that everyone perceived what these two had done. To serve future generations as tangible proof of the infinite power of God, the Lord bade Moses lay an earthen vessel full of manna before the holy ark. And this command was carried out by Aaron in the second year of the wanderings through the desert. When, many centuries later, the prophet Jeremiah exhorted his contemporaries to study the Torah, they answered his exhortation, saying, How shall we then maintain ourselves? The prophet brought forth the vessel with manna and spoke to them, saying, O generation, you see the word of the Lord. See what it was that served your fathers as food when they applied themselves to the study of the Torah. You too will God support in the same way, if you will but devote yourselves to the study of the Torah. When the imminent destruction of the temple was announced to the king Josiah, he concealed the holy ark and with it also the vessel of manna, as well as a jug filled with sacred oil, which was used by Moses for anointing the sacred implements and other sacred objects. In the messianic time, the prophet Elijah will restore all these concealed objects." And we just spoke about this kind of thing. Let me just stop here. We just spoke about this kind of thing there a couple of nights ago about the where the ark is today. Uh, I know that 1 John 2.26 brought out the um, reference of 2 Maccabees that says that, that Jeremiah put it in, uh, put it away into a cave basically on in the in Jordan, uh, on the other side of the Jordan. Um and and so uh, we got lots of different um, theories of where the Ark of the Covenant is. This is a different one. This is that 
King Josiah concealed the, the Holy Ark. Um, again, in spite of what it says in 2 Maccabees and what it says here, I do have to say uh, to this day, I have never heard or seen any greater evidence than that evidence that what the Ethiopians produce of where the Ark of the Covenant is, which they claim is in Aksum, Ethiopia. Israel received three gifts during their wanderings through the desert. The well, the, the clouds of glory, and the manna. The first of the merits of Miriam, the second for those of, of Aaron, and the third for those of Moses. When Miriam died, the well disappeared for a time, but it reappeared as a reward for the merits of Aaron and Moses. When Aaron dies, the clouds of glory disappeared for a time, but reappeared owing to the merits of Moses. But when the last name died, the well, the clouds of glory, and the manna disappeared forever. Throughout 40 years, however, manna served them not only as food, but also as prov provender for their cattle. For the dew that, that preceded the fall of manna during the night brought grain for their cattle. Manna also replaced perfume for them, for it shed an excellent fragrance upon those who ate of it. Wow. In spite of all these excellent qualities of manna, they were not satisfied with it and demanded that Moses and Aaron give them flesh to eat. These replied, we might put, we might put up with you if you murmured only against us, but you murmur against the eternal. Come forward that you may hear the judgment of God. At once God appeared to Moses and said to him, It is revealed to me that the congregation of Israel has said, and what they will say, excuse me, it is revealed to me what the congregation of Israel have said, and what they will say, but tell them this, you have demanded two things. You have desired bread, and I gave it to you because man cannot exist without it. But now, filled with satiety, you demand flesh. This I will give you, so that you might not say, if your wish were denied, God cannot grant it. But at some future time, you shall make atonement for it. I am judge and shall assign punishment for this. In the meantime, however, God granted their wish, and toward evening thick swarms of quails came up from the sea and covered the whole camp, taking their flight quite low, not, to, uh, not two L's above the ground, so that they might uh, be easily caught. Contrary to the manna, which fell in, th in the morning, the quails did not come before evenfall. With a radiant countenance of God gave them the former, as their desire for bread was justified. But with a darkened mien, under, the cover of, under cover of night, he sent quails. Now, because the, the one food came in the morning and the second in the evening, Moses instituted the custom among his people of taking two meals a day, one in the morning and one in the evening. And he set the meal with the use of meat for the evening, and uh, at the same time, he taught them the prayer in which they, they were to offer thanks after eating manna, which read, Blessed 
be thou, O, O, O God, our Lord, King of the world, who in your bounty provided for all the world, who in your grace, goodwill, and mercy granted food to every creature. For your grace is everlasting. Notice. Notice here, very important here, uh, again, for the dispensationalists, according to this, according to the Jewish legend here, and also, if I may add, according to common sense and according to the word of God, grace existed and was poured out. It was, is always the age of grace. From the time of Moses to today, it's always the age of grace. Continuing, for your, for your grace is everlasting. Thanks to your bounty, we have never lacked food, nor ever shall lack it. For great, for your great name's sake, for you supply and provide for all. You are bountiful and nourish all your creatures which you have made. Blessed be thou, O God, that does provide for all. Amen, amen, amen. Okay, so. Uh, a second here. So, yes, uh, let me see what we have here in the in the chat. In the meantime, again, feel free if you have any qu uh, questions or prayer requests to enter them in the chat. So, Mark says, "Have you have you read the first book of Adam and Eve?" I've went through that. I don't know how many times. Um, not all in reading. Sometimes an audio book. Uh, so yes, I I am uh, familiar with that. Uh, he says um, my wife has been reading it, and there's some interesting things in there. Uh, quote: "You asked me for something from the garden to be comforted therewith, and I have given you these three tokens as a consolation to you that you trust in me and in my covenant." with you for i will come save you kings shall bring me uh, shall bring me when in the flesh gold incense and myrrh gold as a token of my kingdom incense a token of my divinity and myrrh a token of my suffering and my death and I, again it just just for a second here, this is very, very interesting indeed, Mark. Uh, Mark said this is from chapter 31. But yes, going back to this one thing here, gold, a token of my kingdom. Yeah, gold is a symbol of um, the king, for sure. King, uh, royalty. Incense, a token of my divinity. Um, well, more like, like a priest. Incense is very associated with a priest, like the king, a priest. Um, and myrrh, a token of my suffering and my death, because myrrh is very bitter. So yeah, that would be a token of death. And that's one of the reasons why they say when Yeshua was born, there was gold, frankincense, and myrrh that was brought uh, as a token of his king, being king, priest. And also there's that bitter, that bitter part of, 
of the gospel as well. Very good. Uh, thank you for pointing that out, Mark. In the meantime, again, for those of you, please feel free to enter your questions and your prayers in the live chat. Once again, we have, for a few more minutes, we have some more beautiful music right here. Thank you. 
Thank you, Hannah. Beautiful, beautiful as always. Okay, guys, um, I'm going to put my email up on the screen here for those of you who want to contact me. Um, if you want to contact me kind of offline, so to speak, um, without being on the live, you can send an email to that. Uh, for those of you who are listening, I know some of you would be listening just audio only. It's Christopher Enoch at protonmail.com. So that's the email you, you can get a hold of me at. And, um, and so, yeah. So this is in the next few days, I want to, uh, um, I'm thinking about doing some different things on the live chat as well, or not in the live chat, but the live streams, excuse me. And, um, yeah. So if you have, uh, any, any suggestions or anything like that, feel free to send them as well. Um, and so, yes, that is, um, that's about it. Remember tomorrow night, we were going to, we're going to basically pick up where we left off, uh, today in our readings, in our studying. Um, so that'd be tomorrow night, starting, uh, tomorrow night, Sunday. So Sunday, every night through Friday at 7 PM Eastern time, um, we are doing our regular fellowship and studying the scriptures. Don't forget to join us then. Okay, guys. So, um, once again, thank you guys for all the questions and the, and the comments and the fellowship. You guys are awesome. I appreciate each one of you and, uh, and I'll see you again, hopefully tomorrow night. Amen. Amen. As always, I pray for each one of you that, that the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you wonderful, wonderful shalom. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. See you tomorrow night.